book of James, chapter 2. As we've seen uh, in chapter 2 through the rest of the epistle, James seeks to flesh out or to unpack uh, the three qualities of religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless, these three qualities being a controlled tongue, care for those in need, and keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. And surprisingly, he doesn't begin with the first. He begins with the second, uh, how we are to care for those in need. And surprisingly, he begins negatively rather than positively. And rather than giving us a sort of a positive command, this is what you should do, uh, he comes at the issue negatively and, and deals with the issue of partiality or favoritism, that our faith, our religion, is not to be marked by partiality. That is, we are not to judge others based on outward appearances and then treat them in a, in a way different than we would have uh, depending on their appearances. He gives the example, and I think it is just that an example. It isn't the thing that he's trying to get across. It's silly, simply an illustration of showing preference for one who appears to be wealthy over one who appears to be poor. And in the first seven verses we saw several weeks ago, he gives us uh, several reasons why we are not to show partiality. First of all, God did not do this in the person of the Lord Jesus. And this is all wrapped up in the word glorious, that Jesus, who is the glory and the presence of God here on earth, when he was here on earth, he did not show partiality. In fact, it's one of the things that got him into trouble was that he would hang out with people who were of low repute, who had a bad reputation. Uh, in fact, one scholar has argued that there, ultimately the reason Jesus was crucified was because he ate with the wrong people. And, and this simply turned Jewish society upside down that people of certain kinds are supposed to eat with the good people, and if you're of a low repute, you eat with the bad people. And Jesus is a teacher, he's a rabbi, and he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. We see that Jesus didn't show partiality based on a, a person's gender, on a person's health. He actually touched lepers, which was really quite phenomenal. He dealt with leaders as well as outcasts. Uh, he dealt with sinners and tax collectors. The second reason James tells us we are not to show partiality is because of God's choices in building or constructing his kingdom. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? If God has chosen the poor things, then who are we to be prejudiced against them or to discriminate against them? Then thirdly, the oppressive nature of those who are wealthy. And again, I think this is based on their experience. I don't think James is saying, he's not making a definitive or an absolute statement that wealth or wealthy people are by nature oppressive. Because we have a significant number of people in Scripture who are wealthy, who are God's people. But their experience has been that the wealthy people are oppressive, and, and, and why would you show favoritism? Why would you show, why would you show partiality to such a person? James then turns to the royal law or kingdom law. That is what we are to obey. And we spent a bit of time on the whole issue of law, in part because so many people see sort of a divide between grace and law, that grace is freedom and law is that which impinges on our freedom, it curtails our freedom, it restrains us or constrains us. And, and James does something really interesting. He refers to the law that gives freedom, which I think for most people would say, well, that, that doesn't make sense. I mean, the law takes away your freedom. It doesn't give freedom. And as we saw last Sunday, that we have to go back to when the law was given and look at that whole story. 
And in the story, we see that grace comes before the law. That is to say, God rescued Israel, he redeemed Israel, and then he gave the law. Redemption and then response. And as I was thinking through the sermon this past week, uh, which I tend to do, is like, oh, I should have said this. The example came to mind of a person who prepares for surgery. That a surgeon goes in and they scrub with, you know, with those brushes and they get themselves all clean. And then they are prepared to go in and perform surgery. Now, one could argue that after a person had scrubbed and was clean, and re- that they actually have the freedom to do anything they want. And they could go out and sort of show off and say, look how clean my hands are because I'm scrubbed. But the reality is they scrub up so they can perform surgery. And in the same way, God has saved us. He has rescued us so that we can be obedient to his law. Again, I think Christians find the idea of law so constricting, but we need to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus do? And what we see is that, God, uh, that Jesus, God in the flesh, kept the law. If we want to follow his steps then we are to be obedient as well. One more thing. Caring for those in need is found in the royal law. We are to love our neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about this last week. What does it mean to love yourself? And uh, let me just repeat some of what I said last week. Hopefully, it is not with an emotional thrill. Rarely is it with a sense of satisfaction, mostly with wholesale disapproval, often with complete loathing. And yet, we are concerned about ourselves, we, can, we care for ourselves, we pay attention to ourselves. Even the most suicidal person, uh, even the person that we would say, this person hates himself, the self is still the focal point of what they do. And they care for themselves. The person who takes their own life, in many ways, is taking care of themselves in the way that they think is best at that moment. So loving ourselves means providing care and, con- and concern and attention. And this is how we are to treat our neighbors, someone who needs our care and attention. Our definition of love, I think, may be different from what God's definition is. Uh, I think we should take care and, and pay attention to what God says about the notion of love. Today we come to the second half of chapter 2, uh, which as the first half begins with, Uh, In the opening sentence, the phrase, my brothers. Uh, As we have seen, James is very economical with words. He doesn't simply put words in there for filler. In our passage today, James will say some very hard things. In fact, let's be honest, it is the passage we are looking at today. This is the reason that most people who reject the book of James, this passage is why they do. It's these verses from 14 to 26. This is why people think, and there are people who think, that the book of James does not belong in the Bible. He is going to say some very hard things. And I think at the outset, he wants to say, listen, my brothers, okay, we're in this together. He's not speaking up from a mountaintop down to them. He is joining with them, and he's saying, listen, my brothers, there's some things I need to tell you. Imagine being someone hearing James' letter for the very first time and hearing the, the question, can a man's faith save him? Remember the people that James is writing to, they used to be members of his church in Jerusalem and now they've scattered 
And they get this letter, and in the middle of the letter, James says, can a man's faith save him? And you're thinking, wow, what, what happened to our pastor? You know, we've been gone, and you know, he's the one who told us, if you want to be saved, you must put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It seems like he's, he's changed his doctrine. What is it that he's teaching? James hasn't changed, but I think he is doing something. I think he is being deliberately provocative. He wants to provoke them to think. He's not going to spoon feed them. He wants them to think. And in order to think, I think to provoke that, he sort of puts something in there that might in fact shock them. Before we get to our passage, we need to deal with the issue of James as the man and faith. What does he have to say about faith? And this is to prepare us for our passage today. Well, first of all, I think James would say that faith is the mark of a Christian. It is the primary thing. It is the common characteristic of all Christians. He begins the book by saying, consider it all joy when you go into these various trials, the testing of your faith. Chapter 2 begins, uh, he's addressing my brothers again, those who, have believer, uh, who are believers or who have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. To be a Christian is to have faith, is to be a part of the family of God. This is how James sees it. Secondly, faith is a gift from God. If you look at verse number 5 of chapter 2, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? He gives them not only faith, but a wealth of faith. But people say, well, wait a minute. I thought, you know, I hear these things that, that James and Paul don't get along, that Paul talks about faith and that James talks about works, which we will look at today. No, I, I think when you compare them, they agree with each other in every point. Faith is a gift of God, as I mentioned in verse number 5. Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It is a common mark of all believers. Um, they would both agree with this. And it is the root from which good works are to grow. That we know James would say, we're not so sure about Paul, but I would encourage you to, to look at Paul's writings again and see that good works result from faith in God. Well, if this is how James looks at the issue of faith, why does he ask the question, can a person's faith save him or her? Well, again, let's look at the whole. Let's not simply look at one particular question. There's a connection between the first half of the chapter and the second half of the chapter. There are actually two connections. Some have argued there are more. The first is the word connection. The word that they have in common is the word faith. Uh, James brings that up in the first half. Now he fleshes it out in the second half. The thematic connection, though, I think is judgment. The first one is more obvious. You, know, you can just read through and say, oh, he's talking about faith and faith. But what about judgment? Last week, as we closed, we looked at verses 12 and 13. We didn't spend a lot of time in them, but I think it is crucial to understanding why he writes these provocative things in the second half of the chapter. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. In other words, one day we are all going to stand before God. God is going to judge us. And when we stand before God, 
what will be the basis of our hope? If God says, why should I let you in? Why, why should you spend eternity in heaven with me? What will be our answer? Well, James would say, and Paul would say, and all their followers would say, it is faith. I have put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have believed in Jesus, that he is who he claims to be, and that his death is sufficient to wash away my sins. The question is, how do we know we have the right faith? This is not an insignificant matter. And it is why James writes the second half of this chapter. After all, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that at the last day, at the final judgment, there will be people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, we have done all of these things in your name. And Jesus will say to them, I don't know who you are. Leave and cast them into hell. So to know whether or not you have the right faith is not an insignificant issue. It is an eternal issue. And it is why James writes this passage. To define or to illustrate what is genuine faith, James presents four illustrations. That of uh, brothers and sisters being in need, demons who believe, Abraham offering his son Isaac, and then Rahab the prostitute who hid the spies. Before we look at this, just keep this in mind as we read through the passage. Each illustration ends with a statement of what James wants us to learn. This happens in verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, verse 26. He gives the illustration and then makes his point. Secondly, the first two illustrations are negative. The third and fourth are positive. What faith is. The negative, what faith is not, then what faith is. And thirdly, the first and fourth deal with our relationships with people. The second and third deal with our, our relationship to God and how that is evidence of our faith. This is a very common form among the Hebrews, by the way, in their writing. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. If you were to put it out, you would write it A, B, B, A. That is, A is the first issue um, our relationship to people. B is our relationship to God. B again, our relationship to God. And then he closes by dealing with our relationship to people. It's a very common format in the way they wrote in that time. The first two deal with counterfeit faith. The second two deal with genuine faith. So keep this in mind now as we read through this passage, beginning in verse 4. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 14, I'm sorry, verse 14, through the end of the chapter. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? 
Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's deal with the first and the fourth verse, our dealings with other people. Here James contrasts counterfeit faith, one might even call it armchair faith, with the faith of that of Rahab, what I would call risky faith. Counterfeit versus genuine, armchair versus risky faith. And one could make the case that, that James has sort of narrowed the scope here. He's talking about how we deal with brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I, again, I think it's only for the purpose of illustration. He's not saying these are the only people we're to care about, but let's begin at home, the people that we worship with. How is it that we are supposed to deal with them? At the end of both sections, by the way, James says that faith without works is dead. But let's be clear as he starts out. He begins, if someone claims to have faith, that is to say a person says, I have put my faith in Jesus as my hope. James would say such a claim is false if there are no actions that go with it. If it has no deeds, that is, it's only words. Talk is cheap, basically. James wants to see something that goes with it. If they speak in the face of someone who is in need or in want, rather than doing something, then this is not genuine faith. If you see someone who is in need, and you say to that person, God bless you, or go and be fed, you know, have a nice day and you don't do anything to help them, then James would say that's not genuine faith. And you contrast this with Rahab the prostitute. Are you familiar with the story of Rahab? Her story is found in the Old Testament in Joshua chapter 2. Before crossing the Jordan River into the Promised Land, Israel had been in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they were, Moses had died, Joshua's taken over, they're getting ready to go over. Joshua sends two spies to sort of look at the situation there, especially the city of Jericho. Well, they go into Jericho, and somehow word gets to the authorities, to the king. There are two Israelite spies in here, and they're staying at Rahab's place. Now, just a parenthesis here. Uh, Inns in the ancient world were often houses of prostitution as well. It was the only place you could find to stay. So somehow she finds out that the king is after these two men, and she hides them up on the roof of her house. She covers them with flax, which she was drying out. And the king's soldiers get there, and they say, where are the spies? And she says, well, you know, they were here, but they've left. And if you hurry up, you can catch them, because I just they left, you know, and you can catch them. And so they run off to get them, and, of course, they're not there, because she's hidden them. And she lets them down by a rope, and the men are able to escape and get back uh, to the Israelites. In doing this, Rahab risked her life as she was helping the enemies of her people. And I was trying to think of an example that we might be able to relate to. 
And I think the example of if somebody today in our country was found to be a member of Al-Qaeda, we'd say, okay, this person is a traitor. They need to be dealt with. But I, I think that's actually not strong enough because in this country, I mean, what do you have to do to, to actually get in serious trouble in this country? I mean, we're so soft on things. I think a better example would be if you were in another country and found to be an agent of the United States. If Al-Qaeda got a hold of you in Afghanistan, how do you think they would treat you? That was Rahab's situation. She was guilty of treason. She risked her life to help these men. And why would she do that? Because she tells these men, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That is to say, she believed. She had faith that God is God. And because she had faith, she was willing to risk everything to help God's people. This is certainly radically different than someone who sort of sits in their chair and sees someone in need and says, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed. That's James' point precisely. One is dead faith, the other is living faith. Verse number 26 uh, James says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Uh, Let's be careful here. He's speaking of an essential unity. There is a unity between the body and the spirit as there is between faith and works. He is not saying that the spirit animates the body, so works animate faith. No, they go together. If you have a body that has no spirit, you have a corpse. If you have faith that has no works, you have dead faith. Okay, uh, James will get even a little more graphic than that in uh, the other section. So our relationship with people needs to be reflected. Our faith needs to be reflected in action. What about our re- response to God? Here again, James contrasts counterfeit with the genuine. One produces fear. The other one, in fact, produces obedience, even friendship with God. Verse 18 begins... Uh, with an imaginary interruption or imaginary interrupter who's not necessarily hostile. He simply wants some points of clarification. If faith is a gift, and James has said that it is, Paul has said that it is, could it not be that some have the gift of faith, and Paul includes that in his list in 1 Corinthians 12, and that others have the gift of works or the gift of mercy. And Paul includes that in his list in Romans chapter 12. So as to say, okay, James, you have faith, but I have works. Or I have faith and you have works. Now, if this is the case, then someone who, who only has faith and doesn't do any works, they're simply exercising their gift that God has given them. Um, But James is speaking of saving faith, salvation faith, not the gift of faith, which is a unique gift, but the faith which says, I trust Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. After all, the demons have faith of sorts. That is, they believe that God is God, and they shudder, they tremble, the King James has it. To affirm that one has faith or one believes in God in one God is nothing special. Even though this is sort of the foundation of the Jewish faith, the Shema that is found 
in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. James would say, so what? So what if you say that? Because the demons would say that. What the demons won't say is what follows after that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The demons believe they are afraid of God, but they do not love him. So faith without works is not sufficient. In fact, one could say that faith without works is demonic. That's what the demons have. They believe in God, but they do not love God or reverence him. One author has said, if demons might hold such faith and remain in perdition, men might hold to it and go to perdition. Listen, if if the demons can believe and they're in hell, what do you think can happen to us if we say we believe? Might we not end up in hell as well? It's not simply enough to say, I believe. Then what is genuine faith? James gives us the example of Abraham. And again, uh, he seeks to be provocative. He says, Abraham was justified, that is, declared righteous by his works. Specifically when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar. Wait, I thought we were saved by faith, by trust, not by anything that we did. He's trying to provoke us. He recalls to us the incident found in Genesis chapter 22. Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. They waited 25 years for this child. God had promised Isaac 25 years earlier. And they waited. And finally, Isaac comes. Is a miraculous out of place in this context? I don't think so. This is a miraculous child of promise. Then one day, God says to Abraham, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. God says to Abraham, I want you to kill your son. And then I want you to burn up his body. I want you to, ser- I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And amazingly, we read in the next verse, early the next morning, Abraham got up. And he went with Isaac and two servants. And they traveled. And on the third day of traveling, they finally reached the place. Abraham and Isaac went up on the mountain alone. Abraham built an altar. He put the wood on it. He tied up his son and put him on the altar and took out his knife to sacrifice his son. And God stopped him and says, now I know. I know that you fear God. Abraham turned around and he saw a ram caught in the thicket. And he took the ram and sacrificed the ram in the place of his son. A tremendous uh, picture of what Christ has done for us. Christ dying in our place. It is this incident to which James refers. And he says in verse number 22, you see, okay, so he's trying to get them to see his point here, that faith promotes works. They're not, works aren't something by themselves. Faith leads to works. But faith also needs works. That works complete faith. 
But in verse number 23, and I think this is the key to the whole passage, faith precedes works. If you look at verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is from Genesis 15. At least in the Bible, that's seven chapters earlier. But in the life of Abraham, it was about 15 years before the incident, actually perhaps 20 years before the incident with Isaac. After being in the promised land for 10 years, God told Abraham, okay, I'm going to make your seed. He took him out in the night sky and said, do you see the stars? That's how many descendants you're going to have. And we are told Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. That's when he had faith in God. Years later, decades later, that faith is confirmed when God says to Abraham, sacrifice Isaac, and Abraham does it. Because he believes, he obeys. And his obedience confirms the reality of his faith. It is genuine faith because he believes and he obeys. It is not, I think, in the act of sacrificing his son that Abraham is justified. He had already been justified earlier. That justification, God saving him, is proven by his willingness to offer his son. And then if you look at verse 24, we see the phrase again, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. If it's by faith alone, then how do we know if the faith is genuine? It'll be a little late to find out when you stand before God and find out that you you had counterfeit faith. How do you know if your faith is real? It must be accompanied by obedience and works. How do we know that Abraham really believed God all those years earlier? It's one of those passages that really throws me living in Los Angeles because God told Abraham, look at the stars. If you can count them, that's how many descendants you will have. Well, if you go out in Los Angeles at night, like, let's see, six, seven, okay, that's about all the stars I can see. Go out someplace when it's out in the middle of the desert at night and just be amazed by the number of stars. And God said, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham believed. But how do we know? Because years later, he was willing to sacrifice his son. Convinced, as we're told in Hebrews 11, that God could raise one from the dead. Abraham's faith wasn't talk. It wasn't cheap talk. Oh yeah, Lord, I believe you. It was real, it was genuine, and it was seen in his actions. It was not a convenient faith. We see this in Rahab as well. Her faith was not convenient. I mean, I suspect that if we had been Rahab, we might have said, okay, after you guys win, you know, then I'll be on your side. She was on their side when it meant losing her life if she was found out. True faith is demonstrated in obedience. I've been talking to some of you before the service today, but there was an article in yesterday's uh, L.A. Times, uh, an article entitled, Church May Penalize Politicians. There will be a connection here at the end, but the thrust of the article is that the U.S. bishops of the Catholic Church are really upset with Catholic Catholic politicians taking non-Catholic 
positions. And let me quote. Uh, I get tired of hearing Catholic politicians say, I am personally opposed to abortion or whatever, but I can impose my moral standards on everybody else, says Bishop Joseph A. Galante of Dallas at the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops in Washington, D.C. this month. That's weaseling out, he adds. In April of this year, uh, news leaked out that Bishop Robert Carlson of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, had sent a letter to uh, Senator Tom Daschle, who is a Democratic senator from South Dakota, uh, requesting that he stop calling himself a Catholic. Last December, Monsignor Kavanaugh, the pastor of St. Rose Church in Sacramento, barred then-Governor Davis from visiting an orphanage, a Catholic orphanage, because of his pro-abortion position. And it got even worse because in January, Bishop William Wiegand of Sacramento uh, called on Governor Davis and other Catholics who support abortion to abstain from receiving communion. This is what he said. Anyone who thinks it is acceptable for a Catholic to be pro-abortion is in very great error, puts his soul, his or her soul at risk. And this is not to pick on the Catholics. I think it simply illustrates what James is talking about here, about talking but not doing. And by the way, when I tell you about this, what is your first reaction? I know my first reaction when I read this was, well, wait a minute. Separation of church and state. Who are these bishops? Who, who do they think they have? What gives them the right to tell these politicians uh, what policies they are to enact? And then I realized how American I am. Separation of church and state. And I realized even further that that position, which is one of the things that people equate with America, has happened in my own life. It's what James is afraid of. Faith and works, church and state. We separate them so that our faith is privately engaging. This is what I believe, but socially irrelevant. So we say we believe, but we don't do. And James told us already in chapter one, you know, don't be people who simply hear the word, do what it says. If we say we have faith, but we do not do what we are called to do, then James would say, we have demonic faith. We have the faith of demons. They believe, they don't do. Abraham believed, Rahab believed, and they did. They risked everything. Imagine being Abraham. At that point, he's over 100 years old, maybe 110, 115. This is the child God promised. If you kill this child, it's all over. I mean, this was the child. You waited 25 years. You can't wait anymore. At this point, Sarah's over 100. You risk losing it all. And what about Rahab? Had she been discovered as someone who helped the enemy, she could have lost her life. They risked everything. And why would they do that? Because they believed. If we believe, then there's got to be some evidence. It's got to be seen in how we deal with other people, those in need, and our relationship to God. 
James tells us that faith without works is dead. It is the faith of demons. And one day we will stand before the judgment. And we need to have genuine faith. Let's pray together. Father, we live in a time and a place that conspires to drive a wedge, a gap, a canyon between our faith and our works. We are encouraged to have faith. We're encouraged to have beliefs, but strongly discouraged, even forbidden to allow that faith to connect with any action in our life. And we find ourselves very much in a position that James describes of having faith but having no works. We know that it is only through the death of Christ that we have salvation, that we are to put our trust in him. But the evidence of the genuineness of that trust and faith is to be seen in obedience. We've talked about a lot of things today, and I pray that by your Spirit in the days to come, we would meditate on them and think them through. And not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We ask now that your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together? our benediction, I might just mention that Jenny and Jesse and Hannah Manuel have slipped in to be with us. We're glad they can be with us today. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.